Today we feature an interview with South Carolina Citizens for Life President Lisa Van Riper. The left goes after conservative justices on the Supreme Court, and the winners and losers of the debt ceiling deal passed by the House are revealed. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. I was a few minutes late getting started this morning, but sometimes there's just so much news. <laughs> it takes all of my time at at night and in the morning and before the show to try to get everything all put together. So there's a lot of stuff for us to talk about today. And uh, so we're going to dive right into it. We'll have an interview this morning at 8 o'clock with Lisa Van Riper, who is the president of South Carolina Citizens for Life. And you may say, well, what what what's the deal? What's the news? Why are we talking to her? Well, if you've been listening to the program... Uh, for the last week, you know that the South Carolina Senate failed to pass H-3774, which would have essentially made abortion illegal after a clinically diagnosable pregnancy. And it had the, you know, what has become the standard exceptions, life of the mother, which is always something actually that conservatives should be for, uh, because life for life is a conservative principle. Protecting life means also protecting the life of the mother. Um, and then the the others are rape and incest, and which I disagree with because I don't think a crime committed against the mother should be an opportunity for the death of the baby. That's That's never made any sense to me. It's a horrible thing. It's a terrible thing. It's something that no woman should suffer. But it's something that law enforcement should vigorously prosecute but the baby that results should be given a chance to live if the mother doesn't want to raise the baby that's a result of, of rape or incest, then there can be um, adoption. I mean, there's just there's so many options other than killing the baby in that case. And then fatal fetal anomaly is something that um, I understand. I mean, if a mother is carrying a baby and there's absolutely no chance that the baby, because of some type of horrendous birth defect that's present and detectable, there's no chance that that baby can survive outside the womb. I understand the, the stress of, of forcing a mom to carry that baby to term and going through all of that if the mother chooses. It doesn't mean that the mother has to abort in that case, but she could choose to abort if those circumstances are present. So anyway, those are the exceptions that are now pretty much standard in any kind of pro-life bill. So that leaves six days starting tomorrow for the House of Representatives to pass the pro-life bill that the Senate passed, which is a, re, a revision of the six-week bill that the South Carolina Supreme Court struck down, better known as the heartbeat bill. It would uh, stop abortion. It would protect life in the womb when a heartbeat is detected. So the problems with that bill are many. First of all, uh, it is it was a poorly written bill. That's according not to me, again, who went to seminary, not law school, but according to the folks who went to law school, lawyers for the Catholic Diocese, lawyers for South Carolina Citizens for Life, and lawyers for Alliance Defending Freedom all say the same thing. 
that there are some serious issues with the way the bill is written. The other issue with the bill is that due to a parental consent portion of the bill, then it could extend the opportunity for an abortion up to 12 weeks in South Carolina, which if, if that condition could be met would still make us a destination state for abortion. Now, we're, you know, the, the chances of it passing in the House are not very good because the House is divided. Um, you've got different factions in the House now that are led by, um, by, by groups. Uh, for example, you've got the Family Caucus, you've got the Freedom Caucus, um, and both of those groups are uh, opposed in most part to the Human Life Protection Act. Now, just like with any kind of groups, there are some who probably would vote for the bill, but as a group, they're opposed to the passage, uh, not the Human Life Protection Act, I'm sorry, of, of the uh, six-week ban, the heartbeat bill. So, um, and, th and then there's the possibility that the Supreme Court, if that bill was passed, it would obviously be enjoined immediately. Uh, Planned Parenthood would file a lawsuit. I'm sure they've already got the paperwork done ready just in case that this modified version of the heartbeat bill would pass the House, and it would have to go back through the courts, back to the Supreme Court, and where there's some agreement and some disagreement on what would happen then. I mean, you've got people who believe that this new Supreme Court justice that has just been placed on the court, uh, Justice Gary Hill, would be much more open to the possibility of passing the heartbeat bill in its current form. Uh, and then you've got two justices that have already voted in favor of the heartbeat bill and against the argument that it violates a woman's right to privacy, which ended up being how the court ruled in the first place. So there's, there's that argument, but then there's the, the possibility that if the Supreme Court were to find the language in the current heartbeat bill to not meet constitutional muster the way all these attorneys think that it wouldn't, then it could be ruled un unconstitutional, and that's two strikes, essentially, with the state Supreme Court, and you're out. It'd be difficult to get any kind of uh, consideration of a pro-life bill. And so th those are the challenges that we face. I'm not saying that there's nothing we can do or nothing we should do. I'm simply saying that's the lay of the land. I'm giving you what it looks like in South Carolina at the moment. Uh, it's going to be difficult to get uh, any kind of pro-life legislation passed in six days. The bill in the House could be modified, but if it's amended, it has to go back to the Senate. And if the Senate doesn't immediately accept it, then it would just sit there till the session runs out unless they were to put it in a sine die resolution to consider it over the summer. And that's I've, I've talked to a lot of people in the Senate and in, in, in the House, and they both say that that's just not going to happen. And the other thing that's not going to happen is a conference committee uh, mostly because of the disagreement that happened in the last conference committee. And the House blames the Senate, and the Senate blames the House for the collapse of the conference committee. And there's, there's reason um, that, that they do this. But, but the bottom line, as to regardless of who's to blame for it, the, the fact is that the conference committee failed to produce a bill, and there's no appetite to go back to a conference committee. So... Um, it just doesn't look good. Um, that's what I'm saying. In South Carolina, 
We're, we've got abortions on the rise. DHEC is reporting that we're up over 1,000 abortion, abortions a month. That number is going to continue to climb. That doesn't take into consideration the fact that Florida has now passed a uh, six-week or a heartbeat bill, and, and there will be those coming from Florida now through Georgia that has a heartbeat bill that's in place that was allowed to remain in place by their Supreme Court. They're going to be coming through Georgia into South Carolina to have abortions. And then now you have a supermajority of Republicans in the House in North Carolina, and there's talk that they're going to pass a heartbeat bill. The governor will veto it, but with their supermajority, they can override the governor's veto. And if North Carolina passes a heartbeat bill, a six-week bill that remains in effect, uh, we're going to see abortions spike to numbers that we couldn't imagine. Uh, we can forget talking about uh, going back to the mid to the early 90s in the number of abortions that we have, the, the era when we were having these thousands of abortions a year, uh, it's going to go off the, cha the chart. It'll go off the scale because we're at 22 weeks. And that opens the door and allows these uh, allows people to come from other states, very close to other states. I mean, you think about North Carolina, um, it would not be a problem at all for them to hop across the border and come to South Carolina to have an abortion. So this this is likely what's going to happen. Now, we're going to have Lisa Van Riper on at 8 o'clock to go into this uh, in a little bit more detail. And the reason I'm spending so much time on it, folks, this is, we're, we're South Carolina. We're supposed to be one of the reddest of the red states with super majorities in the House and the Senate and a governor who's a Republican who said that he would sign pro-life legislation if it makes it to his desk. And we, can't, we have not been able to get it done. Now, I'm not casting blame here. That's not my purpose. I, I, don't, I know that there are sincere people in the Senate and the House that want to get something done, but there are not enough of them. There, we have a divided Republican Party in South Carolina over the issue of abortion. That's a fair statement. And the division in the Republican Party, it is the division in the Republican Party, has nothing to do with the Democrat Party. It's the division in the Republican Party that's keeping this legislation from going through. You've got six Republicans in the Senate, and the women that make up that six Republican group over in the Senate that successfully filibustered the Human Life Protection Act or were able to contribute to the filibuster. They supplied the necessary votes that the Democrats don't have to maintain a filibuster over in the Senate. I mean, they're becoming uh, celebrities going on CNN and different places. I mean, it's just really, it's, it's an amazing situation here in South Carolina at the moment, something that I totally did not expect to see. All right, let's move on and talk about congressional Democrats and their allies in the legacy media because they have launched a full frontal attack against conservative members of the Supreme Court. Now, you may or may not have been paying attention to the attacks against um, uh, Justice Thomas, but those, those attacks are now being, expa being expanded to Neil Gorsuch, and they're even trying to continue to dig up information on Kavanaugh. I mean, uh, and Amy Coney Barrett, all of the justices are under some form of scrutiny by progressives, false accusations, um, contrived narratives. And, and here's the thing that we need to remember when we see all this happening regarding the United States Supreme Court. Our system of government requires limits on government to protect the inalienable rights of the people. I mean, our, the government is to protect 
our rights. They're not to step into the space of, of people when, when it comes to life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness. The, government, the government's not supposed to restrict those things. The limits that were placed on government by our forefathers was supposed to keep the government from doing that, from creating narratives that are detrimental to the people, from putting unreasonable requirements on the people, from oppressing the people. And, and what we need to remember about this is that the objective of power is to wield it to the advantage to the few that hold it. I mean, always, people who desire power, they don't want to have it to hold it. They want to have it to wield it. But the problem is power corrupts. Think about the One Ring and J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, the problem with the One Ring of power is not a lack of effective power within the ring, but the fact that it destroys whoever tries to wield it. I mean, there are those in the story, if you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, um, when they first begin the quest to get the ring back to Mordor to throw it into the fires from which it was forged, which is the only place it can be destroyed, that there were those on the council that wanted to use the ring for a good purpose. Boromir, for example, uh, was um, a warrior of uh, that of Minas Tirith that wanted to, of Gondor, that wanted essentially to use the ring to defeat the enemy that was coming against him. But it was made clear that the ring, even if you try to use the power when you get it for good, then the power itself destroys the one who uses it. That's why our forefathers were so brilliant when they said, we're not going to increase power of government and expect people to be able to wield it effectively. We're going to limit the power of government because they understood this very well. They saw the corruption that absolute power brought to the monarchy in England. They saw it personally. They saw they sought to protect the United States against falling under the influence of power and corruption by spreading the power out among three separate branches of the government and thereby providing checks and balances on the power that the government has. They limited the government. Limited government was the goal of the founders, the forefathers. Now, progressives want to smash those limits because they impede their path to power. It, 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 they especially hate the Supreme Court because it has the final say on constitutional issues. Now, bear, bear in mind, they had no problem with the Supreme Court, with it having all this power, when it was ruling in their favor on things like gay marriage, limiting religious liberty, and the government's ability to take private citizens' land under eminent domain. As long as the court was expanding what they believed were progressive ideals and progressive power, they had not one bit of problem with the court. No, no issue. Um, that the court's doing everything it should do. So, but now, all of a sudden, the court has moved to the right, and the court has begun ruling in favor of protecting the First Amendment, which is something that they should do. Looking at the law, the First Amendment is absolute. It guarantees the right to freedom of religion. It guarantees the right to free speech. And so as the Supreme Court begins to protect those rights, then it, they, they begin to interpret the fact that you can bring your deeply held religious beliefs outside the doors of the church. You don't have to leave your, your belief system locked up in the church during the week. 
The court has agreed that Roe versus Wade has always been bad a bad judicial decision, and they return the question of limiting abortion, of protecting life, to the states. The court is reining in progressive dreams of the executive branch by essentially telling President Biden that if he wants to change or make laws or do something to the laws of the land, which as the executive, as the president, uh, head of the executive branch, what he's supposed to do is make sure the laws are fairly executed. So the Supreme Court's basically saying, look, Mr. President, if you want to make law, you need to resign and run for Congress. They've taken the ink out of his pen and they've disconnected his phone. You remember President Obama had, I've got a pen and a phone, and he passed that pen and phone on down to President Biden and now the, the Supreme Court is saying, look, you can't just sign an edict and dictate from on high how people are going to live their lives in the United States. You, you can't just pick up the phone and call a regulatory agency and, and empower them to go out and limit the inalienable rights of the American people. The Supreme Court is beginning to agree with that. So if you're progressive, how do you deal with this? This is a disaster for them. Do you go out and try to win elections to try to change the makeup of the court? No, that takes too much time. And besides, some of the things that a lot of progressives are advocating for, it's going to be difficult for them to win elections. No, you go out and you start what Thomas Jipping at National Review calls a three-step plan for the hostile takeover of the court. Now, I'm going to use a lot of what Jipping wrote at National Review today to, to make this case, because I, I, I support what he has to say, it, it, there's no question that this three-step process is well underway by progressives, progressives when it comes to the court. The first thing you do is you push the idea that the current justices are deciding cases politically rather than impartially. Now, <laughs> you know, that, that, of course, didn't come into play again when you had the Bostock decision of the Supreme Court that protected transgender rights in the workplace, um, it, it didn't come into question at all when you had um, the same-sex marriage upheld by the court. So that wasn't political, not in the eyes of progressives, but now they say that the Constitution is being twisted to shape a political agenda. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a Democrat of Rhode Island, accused the Republican-appointed justices of, quote, delivering rulings that advantage the big corporate and special interests that are, in turn, the political lifeblood of the Republican Party. Now, he, says, he makes that statement without commenting on whether or not the justices followed the law. See, here's the thing, folks. That what the Supreme Court is supposed to do is interpret the law, and they're supposed to interpret it according to what the law says, not according to what they want it to say, not according to what progressives tell them it says, not according to what conservatives tell them it says. They're supposed to read the law and interpret it according to what the founding fathers intended when the law was written. And when the court does that, Generally, it rules against progressives because progressives know that the law is properly interpreted because of the intent of the founders is going to limit government and therefore limit progressives' ability to have power. So 
Are they succeeding? Well, they're doing a pretty good job according to polling. There was some polling data out in the last few months that suggests that the American people believe, about 62% of the American people believe that the court is ruling, the Supreme Court is ruling politically and not according to the law. And it's because every corner of the legacy media is promoting this idea, is pushing this idea out to the American people. And because, again, most people are busy with life. They're not attached to a news outlet. They don't read an abundance of stories every day. Now, our democracy, our constitutional republic, which is a form of democracy, depends on an informed public. So we have a personal responsibility to know the truth and to get to it. Uh, we need to take the time to understand how the court works and that the court is ruling according to the law, not according to any political agenda. However, when the court gets in the hands of progressives, they have no qualms about having a political agenda. They apply a political agenda to the court without apology because they think the way that that's the way that it's supposed to operate, that the only right thinking that can possibly be tolerated in America is progressive thinking, and that has to be extended to the Supreme Court by any means. Now, the second thing, if you want to destroy a conservative Supreme Court, you attack conservative justices. You smear them with lies and innuendo. Well, forget innuendos, because when you're lying, like some of these people are, uh, you don't need innuendos. You can just use outright lies. So you begin by attacking Clarence Thomas, you accuse him of not complying with the court's disclosure rules. That's what Thomas has been under attack about. Thomas supposedly took lavish vacations in luxury resorts and cavorted on super yachts and then covered it all up by not disclosing the trips to the public. Well, the problem with that is the law doesn't say or the ethics rules that the Supreme Court has agreed to, to uh, live by doesn't say that longtime friends, that, that if you're on the Supreme Court and you've got friends that you've been friends with for years and even before you uh, ascended to the court, there's nothing that says that you can't accept hospitality from them and, and nothing that says that those trips specifically have to be reported as gifts. Now, nowhere in the story does anybody demonstrate with evidence that Thomas is wrong when he asserts that he's been compliant with the disclosure rules. They can't disp dispute it because it's true. It's true that the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is the policy setter for the lower court judges, whose guidance the Supreme Court justices have agreed to follow. Now, they've agreed to follow this guidance voluntarily, but they ch this... this um, this group, the Judicial Conference, changed the disclosure rules for personal hospitality, but they changed them effective March 4th of 2023, uh, excuse me, March 14th. Now, if you don't have a calendar right in front of you because you're driving or you're, you, you just don't have a calendar right now, uh, that's March 14th of this year, which is just a little over a month ago. And so now, You've got the Associated Press saying that Justice Thomas is not adhering to rules that other justices uh, are required to adhere to, lower court justices that are, are required to adhere to, because he's violating a rule that only came into place 
on March 14th of this year. I mean, that's absurd. Obviously, Thomas has released a statement, and in that statement he said, of course, I'm going to comply with any new ethics rules that the court adopts based on recommendations from the judicial conference, but I'll have to comply with them going forward because I don't have a time machine. He didn't say that. I'm saying that. Since he can't, like Michael J. Fox, hop in a DeLorean and go back in time to the time when those ethics violations were actually violations, then all he can do is conform to them going forward. The Washington Post reported that Thomas claimed income from a defunct real estate firm. Now, what's interesting is that the definition of defunct, according to the Washington Times, is that the company changed its name, and when Thomas neglected to note the name change on his disclosure form, the Washington Times equated that with the Kennedy assassination. That's an exaggeration. They didn't quite equate it with the Kennedy assassination. But all we're talking about here is that a company decided to, na to change its names. name. And for the Times, that means that company is defunct. So I guess every time a company changes its name, it goes out of business as that company and comes into business, into existence under the new name. That's ridiculous. That, that's a standard that nobody uses or adheres to except the Washington Times when they're talking about a conservative justice. So this is the kind of thing that Clarence Thomas has had to endure. The New York Times accused Thomas of having a Confederate flag on his desk when he served as the Assistant Ger Attorney General of Missouri. Well, it turns out it was the Georgia state flag. Now, at the time... The Georgia flag, I think, had a modified version of the Confederate flag in it, but that's a far cry. I mean, that when, when you come out and say, well, he had a Confederate flag on his desk, what do you picture? You, you picture the Confederate battle flag sitting there by itself on his desk making some kind of statement. That's not what happened at all. Thomas is in the crosshairs of the left because he has increased his influence on the court over the years, and his influence is in a conservative direction, a reading of the Constitution that the four, our forefathers intended, and for progressives, that can't be. Now, we're going to talk more about this uh, this morning as, as we go along because there's I've got some other examples, and then recently, Justice, uh, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, has actually uh, done something that I, I really approve of, is uh, that he's written a, a statement to Congress telling him he's not going to come and testify before any kind of Senate ethics committee because he doesn't have to, according to the Constitution. All right, let's go ahead and bring in Lisa Van Riper. Lisa is the president of South Carolina Citizens for Life, and she's been, of course, monitoring uh, activity down in Columbia this past week where the Senate failed to pass the Human Life Protection Act and now the question is, is there anything left that can be done to protect life in six, week, in six days rather, uh, before the legislative session ends? Lisa, thanks for calling in. Appreciate you being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me this morning. Um, boy, that was a, that is a complicated question, as you know, because you were there for a very important part of last Thursday. The short answer is, is it possible? It is possible, um, but is it probable? No, 
no, it's not probable. Um, and I think the reason is that there are some differences between the House and the Senate bill. That's number one, that would have to be reconciled. And we're only operating with six days that are left in the legislative session. Right. So uh, now, had the Senate been able to amend the House bill and send it back and the Senate and the House could have quickly rejected the Senate bill, it would have gone to a conference committee. And that conference committee, that report would not have been due until um, May the 25th. And it's my understanding that the Senate was going to reconvene to receive all conference reports. It wouldn't have been, of course, anything just about the Human Life Protection Act. But that would have extended the time and put it over in a smaller group if they had chosen to work during that time. So that was one of the things that was an option on the table. But I, I think really the Senate majority leader in assessing all of those things felt like that probably the Senate, we'll just call them the Senate six, the Senate six probably did not have an appetite for that and it required right. a three-fifths vote to even get an amendment considered uh at that point on third reading yeah we need so, to go back uh, we need to go back right let me jump in for a second because people need to understand yes. we talked about this uh on friday but the 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 measure uh h 3774 actually passed by a vote of i think it was 22 to 21 on wednesday now that was second reading, so correct. And, and and any usually as we go through the legislative process in South Carolina, amendments and and all of that, the floor debate is taken during second reading. First reading, it the, the bill is just what they call read across the desk, which means it's announced to the body that the bill is going to be debated and it's added to the calendar. Second reading is where the debate and the opportunity for amendments are uh, take place. And amendments can be made by a majority of the body. It doesn't require any kind of supermajority. But third reading, once you get to third reading, then to amend the bill on third reading, it takes three-fifths of the, um, the House, I mean the, of the body, the Senate, to amend the bill. And that it becomes very difficult to do so. Usually, third reading is a let's meet and vote again, and this thing is passed and it goes on to the governor. But, of course, that's not the case with this bill because of the nature of the bill, of it being so controversial. Those who opposed it, when they saw the vote on Wednesday, 22 to 21, they knew that their, the votes were not present to break a filibuster. That's why the filibuster took place on Thursday when it was difficult to amend the bill. That was a strategy, and it worked. Well, it did It did work, and I don't know how that strategy came about. Um, the, the, three, the, the Senate rules are an impediment to passing a bill quickly. Right. And I, I think it's important for the audi audience to understand that sometimes those rules work in the favor of conservatives who may be needing to slow something down. And, and you've been on the receiving end of that, Tony, as you know. Right. Um, and sometimes those rules 
help those of us who are trying to restrain public policy. It, it seems to me, and I'm not the theologian here, you're the theologian, but that government was instituted by God as one of our uh, institutions for the good of humanity to restrain good, restrain, I mean restrain evil and to promote good. And in restraining evil, we, we, we sometimes need the filibuster. We sometimes need a three-fifths rule. We sometimes need a, a third reading that will not allow amendments easily and those kinds of things. In the House, you know, those rules are very different. And so the House can get things done much more rapidly because once it goes through second reading, can amend a bill on third reading. It usually is, let's take a night, let's look at it, and then we vote. Not so in the Senate. This time, the rules worked against a bill that we very much wanted. Now, I think this is the question. Why did the Senate, uh, those who, why did the Senate, either those who wanted the bill, either allow that strategy or encourage that strategy? And, and it may have been that they wanted to preclude lots of amendments from being put on the desk by those who oppose the bill. There may have been some good reasoning there. And so I don't want to mon literally Monday morning quarterback the, we know 22 people who really wanted this bill. We had right. a majority of people right. who wanted the bill. And we need to remember that. Well, and, and the and, other thing and, that we need to remember is this. It was six Republicans that allowed the filibuster to succeed because that if if only four Republicans had said, now nah, we're going to filibuster, then the filibuster would have failed. But it took but because six got together and said, we're going to we're going to hold the line here with the Democrats. The bill failed. And, and here's my you, you gave a, a, a really good analogy of and you're exactly right about the rules of the Senate how sometimes they benefit one side, sometimes they benefit the other side. It depends on what the bill is and what you're trying to accomplish. But in this case, we need to keep in mind that it was six Republicans who are in a party that has a strong pro-life plank in the party platform. The South Carolina pro-life plank for the Republican Party in South Carolina, I think, is even stronger than the national uh, pro-life plank in the Republican Party. It's very similar, but it's it. we've always had lawmakers who in South Carolina, when they run as Republicans, one of the first things they say or the question they answer is, yes, I'm going to be pro-life. I'm going to be as pro-life as the law allows. And then we get into a situation where the mechanism of the Senate is used by people who have pledged to be pro-life to stop that from going through, even though there were enough pro-life votes to pass it. That's the disturbing thing to me. Well, that is the disturbing thing to me also. This was not the normal case of the other party uh, that ha has a very strong pro-abortion, or they would call it pro-choice platform. Um, this is not, this, this was not that party. This was the Republican party and it was six. It was six out of a caucus of 30. Right. Now, something that probably 
most of our, most of your listeners may not know, uh, there's no reason for them to know, but South Carolina Citizens for Life, we send out surveys and it only deals with one issue and it deals with life. And we have on our survey, you know, would you support legislation that would prevent all of, um, prevent abortions, except in the case of life of the mother and a serious, you know, the serious uh, bodily function kind of question. And then if this is not possible, would you support an abortion? And it lists then the additional rape and incest. So we've never, to my knowledge, had a question on there um, about, you know, and would you also, uh, or would you, if you can't do this, support something with heartbeat. Now, we don't object to drawing a line at heartbeat. That's better than drawing the line at 20 weeks, right? I mean, that is a of course early discernible place. However, the people that we have endorsed have either over a period of time cast votes consistent with policy positions as Citizens for Life and being joined by other groups like Palmetto Family and the Diocese and the Baptists and and uh, crisis pregnancy centers and Alliance Defending Freedom and those those groups, either that or they have signed a survey from us that answered those questions, one of those two in the affirmative, or they couldn't have gotten our endorsement. So I think we are dealing with a situation where we, in some cases, in some cases have had people over the years who have indicated perhaps in writing that they had a position. And after the Dodds decision, when Roe was overturned, I think we're seeing some people get a little squishy, honestly, on where they are willing to, when they're willing to protect unborn, unborn children. The other thing that dismayed me even more than that was that these were not disagreements among people that seemed, um, I don't know, to be at least friends of life on the day of the debate. I want to be very careful about the way I say this. These folks, instead of just saying, I disagree, I think we should uh, protect children, but I don't want to draw a line until we have a heartbeat, okay? Because there's several places. There's conception, there's uh, diagnosable pregnancy, which is a little later than that. And then you've got about four weeks later, this heartbeat. Okay, so there are places to draw the line. Let's sit down and reason together and let's be polite with each other and civil and see each other as as friends. Okay, at least friends as against the other party that wants abortions to the day of delivery. Okay, there, there's a big difference there. That was not the way this debate was handled. This debate turned into at least one senator seeming to audition for the handmaiden's tale, okay? And wanting to craft things as women by having pro-life legislation that might start at uh, diagnosable pregnancy. Somehow that was putting having women owned by men Right. You know, that's that's just and then to have taken a dear man like Father Gatlin, who is the father of Holly Gatlin, our executive director, been there working for a penance for 35 years. Uh, I, 
he he marched in the civil rights movement. He led his Episcopal congregation out to another denomination because he saw that group going uh, liberal for him. But he marched in the civil rights movement. This man was no sexist, and yet he was he was described, I believe, as one of our senators of the six, the Senate six, as a sexist who had so influenced his daughter the implication that she was really anti-woman there right. and to invoke somebody who's been dead i think 40 years you know on the floor so it was not only the position that it was took, let me let me, let me say this that was despicable okay uh personal attacks coming from a senator against someone who as you say has been deceased that amount of time but suggesting that the way they parented their daughter, who now leads South Carolina Citizens for Life as executive director, somehow that influenced her to be anti-woman. Uh, that is that is an outrageous statement, and there should be an apology issued. Um, now, I don't know if one's going to be forthcoming, but the example that you just used is an example of how set the six were in their attitude uh, about stopping the Human Life Protection Act. Now, to be fair, um, I think all but one of the six voted in favor of the heartbeat bill, the Senate version of the heartbeat bill that went over to the House. So I, I'd have to go back and double-check that, but I believe that's correct. Now, but, but I want to talk about the heartbeat bill. Let, let me shift back over for a second, Lisa, because there, yeah. there's a part of the heart, heartbeat bill that has a parental consent section that's particularly concerning uh, to those to those of us who are pro-life because essentially it would extend the opportunity for abortion to 12 weeks. Is that is that right? Yes, it, yes it's it's interesting. I have that in front of me. I don't. I think you know. I hope that the intent here was that they just wanted to make sure there was nothing in this act to prohibit you know, a minor child from going to a judge to get consent for an abortion if the, they couldn't get it from the parent. That's what we have. It's called judicial bypass. But it's very interesting in it that they say that a physician may perform, induce, or attempt to perform or induce an abortion on a minor who successfully petitions the court, of course, which they have the right to do, an order granting her the right to obtain an abortion without the consent required in parental consent and the and the probate um, pro, uh, gestational age of the unborn child is not more than 12 weeks well that to me that that is not, why would you put 12 weeks in there yeah in a six-week bill in a six-week bill and so they've got that and it's not only that part, there are several other parts, and I can't tell you what they are because um, I have not seen the report. But National Right to Life, Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Catholic Diocese, and all of those have very fine lawyers. They all came back without any consultation with each other, and they all raised red flags. And in fact, National Right to Life had said, we can go on and support the Human Life Protection Act from the House. We would need amendments in order to, for us to authorize you to get behind the fetal heartbeat bill, okay? Um, and so we would have to, in this six-day period, we would have to get 
all those amendments drafted that those three organizations might have problems with, submit them to the Judiciary Committee. The Judiciary Committee would have to have those drafted. They would have to have an amendment. They would, um, or amendments. They would have to pass it out of Judiciary, pass it to the floor for second reading, pass it on third reading, get it to the Senate, and the Senate would have to agree with every amendment. Right. And which and is it's just did, not likely. I mean, that's just it's not it's not likely to have. You would have to have everything ready in the morning with all of this ready to go. And then you would have to have the Senate ready to receive it. So there would have to be coordination here. And in the conversations we had with some senators, and I would say in leadership positions who would know what they're talking about, they are not sure that all of the six, because see, we still have to have the votes when it gets to the Senate. Right. You've still got a few of those six. And they're, they're right now, we don't know. I do know that I don't think that at least the women of the six have backed up because they were featured in a CNN report right. um, on Friday. And and again, I, I don't want to dismiss these facts that, that at least a few of these did vote for the, for the heartbeat bill as passed by the Senate. But here's the trick. They may not get the same heartbeat bill back from the House. In fact, I don't think they would. And so because of that, then you're faced with this. Do you do something just real fast or do you just pull up a bill that you know has problems like the one I just read from you for you for your audience? Do you pull that up and just say, let's just get something done and, and we're going to save babies? No, you're not going to save babies. Because two things are going to happen for sure. One thing is going to happen for sure. It will be implemented for about as long as Planned Parenthood can get the ink to dry on the next challenge in the South Carolina Supreme Court, correct? Well, I think the ink's already dry. I mean, I think they've got, right. they've got it ready to drop. Ready, so it, it would be filed within hours. That's what happened the first time. That, That's what happened. First time, right? First time when it had to go into federal court. So the audience needs to understand this. This is not we're going to save so many babies between now and January. That's not going to happen because it's going to get tied up by opponents of this bill immediately as soon as the governor signs it. Right. And so and so then you are before the court, not with the best bill that can be crafted between the two bodies, and I say that respectfully for both Shane Massey, the Senate Majority Leader, and his leadership team, and the Speaker of, of the House, and Representative McCravey, and, and Adam Morgan with the Freedom Caucus, with all the, with the leadership team over there. I, I really think we've got to go to the South Carolina Supreme Court, not with something rushed through but with something that is the best that the two chambers can put before um, our Supreme Court, because we're going to have one more chance at this. They might see enough difference between the bills to uphold it. If they don't, they could invoke precedent on the pre on the fetal mm. heartbeat bill. Sorry, decisive. Yeah. 
then you got two strikes. So this doesn't this that people need to understand that this is it's it's complicated. We have seen some breaches in Republican support, and that South Carolina is at a new place. This is the good news. The first fetal heart bill that was passed back in 2021 is what's called a pre-Dodds a pre-Dodds uh, uh, bill. Right. It was crafted to hopefully a road that means make it much more narrow or to or to actually overturn Roe v. Wade. Okay. That bill was not was written in such a way to get to the Supreme Court and to hopefully force the court to take up an issue. Okay, you might say a woman has a right to abortion, but when you have a heartbeat here, should an abortion continue? It was a specific question before the court. Right. And we hoped it would be upheld and would narrow row or maybe even overturn row. Well, Mississippi got there with a a 15-week ban, as you know, first, and it was their question they took up. We really didn't expect them to take it up on Mississippi. But the we question, the, but, but the but question now, was viability. I mean, that was, and that was the purpose. All these heartbeat bills around the country were trying to push the issue, the question, viability, what, and and to get the court to consider it. Uh, the, and, to move it back because right. see, viability has been considered when the child with, with, could could quote live without the woman. So we were testing it. What about redefining to heartbeat when you've got the heartbeat clearly on the screen? So people need to understand, too, that we did not even really have an option before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade to move to diagnosable pregnancy. So this is our first post-Dodd bill. And so we thought coming back with a post-Dodd bill, we're not restrained by the U.S. Supreme Court anymore. What would the General Assembly do? Well, now we know 83 to 31 will vote for a bill that will save 95 percent of the children, with certain exceptions, at at drawing a line when a woman knows she's pregnant. We we know another human life is there. We don't take it except under extraordinary circumstances. We now know six in the Senate are not going to draw a line there. Right. There may be. Some within the six, although we now see shifts even in those six, some in the six may still support drawing a line at heartbeat, which um, and but but unfortunately, it, they seem to they seem to be using a good bill heartbeat to defeat the better bill of the Human Life Protection Act. And that's what's disturbing to me was the whole intent and the tone of the debate. All right, let's, uh, we've, 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 right, we, we've, we've got to wrap this up. So let, let me just uh, ca- encapsulate it by saying this. Uh, the House passed uh, what we in the pro-life community consider to be the best bill that we had available. Uh, they passed it, handed it off to the Senate. The Senate failed to pass it. Uh, they passed uh, a heartbeat bill, which uh, many have pointed out that there are flaws in that bill that are serious. And that bill is over at the House. The Senate failed to pass the Human Life Protection Act. And now the pressure is on the House 
uh, coming from many in the Senate saying, this is all we have left. This has to be passed in the next six days. The problem with that is that it's not that simple. I think we've pointed out some of the reasons that that may not be as just a simple matter of passing that bill because of questions that have been raised about the bill and because that in the House, the Republican caucus is divided over that. They're united, as you just mentioned, over the uh, Human Life Protection Act. But the heartbeat bill, there's far from anything that looks like a consensus. So it, it, if it doesn't pass, then we're going to have to look at the landscape. We're going to have to accept the fact that we're going to be an abortion destination state until the legislature comes back in January, and then we're going we're gonna to have to hold lawmakers accountable to their pro-life pledges as we head into the 2024 election uh, cycle right. and try to get something done in January before that. So that's kind of where things lay at the moment. Lisa, thank you yeah, for taking so much time. Yeah, I do. I want to encourage, though, in one minute, we do we we do have restraints in the law because of people in your listening audience and others who've worked. We have informed consent, parental consent, partial birth abortion ban, informed consent. We do have some things there that do surround a woman and the unborn, uh, even those coming in from out of state. And so it's not that there's nothing there up to 22, but it's not what it needs to be. And it's certainly not being as much of a restraint as we need at this time. Right. But I did want people to know their work has not been in vain. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate the call Thank very you. much. Lisa Van Riper, president of South Carolina Citizens for Life. We appreciate her spending the time with us to talk about this because this is this is the kind of stuff that I've, I've kind of been in the middle of, uh, particularly last week, but actually all legislative session. And I just wanted you to hear some of the of the, of the reasons. It's, it isn't just as simple as go pass the Senate bill over in the House. Uh, if there was consensus in the House Republican caucus that that's the bill that needs to pass, maybe that would be easy to accomplish. I don't think that consensus is there. Uh, I think there's a lot of disagreement about the heartbeat bill in the House. Obviously, that's not the bill that the House passed. Um, and some say, well, they need to just just go along with it. And I think we pointed out some of the reasons why that may not be the best thing to do, uh, considering the questions that have been raised about the Senate version. Um, but again, uh, this really comes down to people, the people who have been elected to do this. You know, it's not the responsibility of advocates to go out and and make policy. We make recommendations. We ask um, lawmakers to fulfill their promises and their pledges. We find good legislation. We help craft it as much as we can. And then we get behind it and support those who vote for it. And what we have in the House right now is a divided Republican caucus. And I'm talking about the, the, the majority of those people in the House are pro-life. They proved that when they passed the Human Life Protection Act on such a strong vote. And so, honestly, that bill should have passed over in the Senate. It didn't. Uh, this bill in the House now, uh, it's going to be difficult in six days for the caucus, Republican caucus, I think, to reach a consensus. We are going to have to live with the fact that if they don't, that we are going to have extraordinary high abortion rates 
and the only chance that we're going to have to do anything about it is going to be January, legislatively, January when the new session begins in 2024. That will be an election year. That's going to give us an advantage if the pro-life community in South Carolina steps up. We have got to step up. These lawmakers have to hear from you. They have to hear what you want. They have to, they have to understand that South Carolina is a pro-life state, that we're still a pro-life state. Um, and the only way that's going to happen, it's not, it just can't be my voice and Lisa's voice and Mitch's voice and um, you know Tanya's voice with ADF or Michael's voice with the Catholic Diocese or anybody else's voice. We, we represent organizations that are pro-life, but what needs to happen is that the people who are pro-life have to make a stand and contact their legislators and express their concern over the fact that South Carolina is right now an abortion destination state. All right, we're running out of time. I wanted to finish up a little bit of this on the judicial question that we started out with this morning, um, and then we're not going to be able to talk about the benefits of and, and the winners and losers, I should say, of this debt ceiling bill, which is probably not going to pass the Senate anyway, but I think it has some merit that needs to be discussed, and there, there would be winners and losers. But let me just wrap up a little bit by letting you know that the press recently launched against Neil Gorsuch, and they've been attempting to create a scandal narrative around him. And we were talking about the, uh, the media and the progressives kind of coming together to go after these conservative justices. Not long after being confirmed to the court, Gorsuch and two partners sold a vacation property, and he disclosed the sale uh, on his next financial disclosure form, but he didn't identify the buyer. So Politico and others have screamed that that violated ethics laws, but even the, or ethics requirements. But even the New York Times has admitted that the disclosure didn't violate any of the uh, ethics rules. But they are calling for the court ethics reforms anyway. They want the Congress to step in and do something. So having succeeded. And I, I think it's we can say that progressives has, have succeeded in creating a politically driven fake ethics narrative. Then you introduce legislation to require the Supreme Court to produce a formal ethics code. Now, what that would do would be to allow anyone to file a complaint that the Supreme Court that a Supreme Court justice has allegedly violated some provision of such a code. And and here's the bottom line, folks: the Constitution it, it, the Constitution created the Supreme Court. It created Congress. It created the executive branch, legislative, executive, judicial. And so the Congress doesn't have any business setting requirements for the Supreme Court. You don't have one branch stepping over into the business of another branch. The separation of powers needs to be recognized. That's a foundational principle of our country. And once that begins to get violated, then that undermines the nature of our constitutional republic. And I, I want to give kudos quickly to Justice uh, Roberts, who they issued a statement when all this stuff started happening uh, back to this group in the Senate that's trying to promote the idea of ethics reform in the Supreme Court because it's just rank with all kinds of, of uh, dishonesty uh, and their scandal. And, and this is all being, it's a narrative that's being created by progressives so that they can come up with a solution. 
What they do is they go out and try to create a problem that doesn't exist, that fits their narrative, and then they come up with a solution which does fit their narrative. So all nine Supreme Court justices, this is according to Ryan Saavedra, writing for Daily Wire, all nine Supreme Court justices issued a statement last week pushing back on attempts from Senate Democrats to implement new ethics oversight measures over the, high, over the nation's highest courts, which comes after the political left has tried to generate controversy. Now, that's a good uh, statement. Here's what Roberts said. Testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee by the Chief Justice of the United States is exceedingly rare, as one might expect in light of separation of powers concerns and the importance of preserving judicial independence. And so Roberts basically said, no thanks, I'm not going to come and testify before you because you're not supposed to be, in, in light of the Separation of Powers Act, then you're not supposed to be calling Supreme Court justices in front of, of a committee. Um, and then in this letter that the nine justices signed, they agreed, that, saying that they all agree with Roberts' stand, that would be the progressives and the conservatives on the court. And then they added this statement. A word is necessary uh, concerning security. Judges at all levels face increased threats to personal safety. These threats are magnified with respect to members of the Supreme Court, given the high profile of the matters they address. Recent episodes confirm that such dangers are not merely, merely hypothetical. Security issues are addressed by the Supreme Court police, United States Marshals, state law and local enforcement, and other authorities. Matters considered here concerning issues such as travel, accommodations, and disclosure may at times have to take into account security guidance. In other words, Roberts is saying to these progressive senators who want to invade the court, why aren't you doing your job to start with in protecting the court against attacks from people who disagree with their decisions? Why not be more concerned about the security of the court? The Justice Department is not concerned. Merrick Garland has not been concerned about the security of the court. He allowed protests to take place outside of the houses of prominent conservative Supreme Court justices after Roe. He allowed that to happen even though the law expressly forbids it. So this is, you know, it, it, it is another avenue that progressives are trying to use to undermine conservatives and to undermine the court because it at the moment is not agreeing with the progressive agenda. All right, that's all the time. We've run a little bit over time today, but that's okay. Like I said, we had a whole lot of things to talk about, and we're going to have a lot of things to talk about tomorrow uh, as we're going to go back and talk about this debt ceiling debate, plus whatever else happens to be in the news. And I promise there'll be plenty of things in the news for us to cover tomorrow. But in the meantime, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to pray for our country. I want you to pray for our system, our constitutional republic, for our leaders. And I want you to remember that at the end of the day, when all of this discussion is completed, that God is in control. God bless you. I'll see you tomorrow at 7.30. I hope you'll join me live. And don't forget, the show's now available as a podcast at iTunes and Spotify. <laughs>